Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Kit, thanks again for joining us. Um... In terms of how bad is the situation? Because if I was going to put my big, notorious Tory stooge devil's advocate hat on, I'd say, come on, very successful vaccination program. Yes, the deaths that we're seeing are terrible, but they are significantly lower than the two peaks that we had in spring of 2020 and obviously the horrible winter at the beginning of the year. And, uh, and it's manageable. Um, so given the trade-offs, you know, is this really as bad as people say it is? Well, I think, yeah, we heard Sajid Javid suggest that deaths are mercifully low at the moment. I don't think that's the case. We're averaging about 136, 137 deaths a day, which translates to about 50,000 deaths a year. Yes, vaccines have made a huge difference, and that's been incredibly important uh, and yes, deaths are low in comparison to, to January and to the spring peak, but those are two incredibly low bars to judge our current response against, given that we now have vaccines. All the COVID indicators in the, in the UK are going in the wrong direction at the moment, and they have been for a while. Cases are surging upwards. Hospitals are already feeling pressure. We're only in autumn. We're not in the middle of winter. Uh, and daily death tolls are high and, and rising. And, and at the same time, we're seeing a slowdown of vaccination delivery uh, and so things in the uk are not looking pretty especially when compared to our comparative european neighbors in terms of how bad things could get uh, what for you i guess is the best scenario based on the data we have now and what is i guess the realistic and the worst case scenarios of where we're currently heading i mean it's it's really difficult to say because so many unknowns i think if we speed up the booster jab program, if we uh, speed up vaccinating 12 to 15 year olds, um, and if we can provide more mitigations in schools, because we know it's, it's largely school children who are driving the epidemic at the moment, uh, although cases are spilling over into their parents' age group and their grandparents' age group, that's the sort of real worry, um, then it's possible that we can bring this under control. Uh, I think it's sensible to think about talking about other mitigations like mask wearing in public spaces as well, improving ventilation, potentially vaccine passports, things like that, which we know have had a, a big impact in, in our European neighbours. Um, unfortunately, if, if we don't do anything now, then cases look set to continue to rise and hospitalisations and deaths will follow. And that um, puts further pressure on the NHS. And it means that we're also not clearing the backlog of operations and treatments that haven't been given by the NHS over the last 18 months. So um, really taking sensible light touch measures now this is one lesson we should have learned from all the mistakes we've made so far. Taking early measures now is much better than taking more stringent, harder measures later on. Compared to our European neighbours, why are we doing so badly? Because, of course, for a long time, the government tried to, I suppose, scrub away the sin of the terrible handling of the pandemic, which led to one of the worst death dolls. 
uh, in Europe uh, by trumpeting, of course, the vaccination program, which was a huge, huge success delivered by the National Health Service. But it was a huge, huge success. Um, so why all of a sudden, compared to all to, to many major European nations, we're doing so bad in terms of case numbers, which are just way higher, hospital admissions, deaths, serious illness, every statistic. What what could why has that happened? And what could have been done to allow us to be in the same situation they're now currently in? Yeah. So just for context, Germany is seeing case rates about a quarter of what we're seeing in terms of per head of population. Uh, France is seeing roughly a tenth and Spain maybe a twentieth. And with deaths, Germany is seeing about a half of what we're seeing in France and Spain seeing about a third. Ironically, part of the reason is due to the fact that we did roll out a very successful fast vaccination programme. We've now learned that immunity wanes to some degree. So we're suffering to some extent the fact that we gave our jabs longer ago and now we need boosters. Of course, that is going to be hopefully rectified by the booster programme, but that isn't keeping pace with the rapid pace at which we gave our first and second doses. Uh, also, we were using AstraZeneca, which we know isn't as effective uh, protecting against severe disease and reducing transmission as the, the mRNA vaccines that the rest of Europe were using. But probably the main factor is the fact that most of the rest of Europe realised this wasn't over and have maintained some restrictions, including masks in public spaces, some countries not allowing huge gatherings, uh, COVID passports in some countries, and they've managed to keep on top of their case rates and their deaths, and they're keeping them low as they head into winter, so that even if things do start to rise, they'll at least be starting from a low base, whereas we in the UK are already starting from from a relatively high level, and, and of course that's a concern. In terms of how other respiratory infections could interact with this, because, again, I speak, as people probably know, as not someone who uh, has a specialism in this area, but community immunity has fallen, hasn't it, when it comes to flu, because the measures taken to suppress COVID, which is a far more infectious illness than than flu, means that flu was essentially just completely obliterated in this country for such a long period of time, as well as other respiratory illnesses. Lots of people watching or listening will have or currently have a terrible cold, which is going round. Uh, lots of people I know have been stricken with that. They all got their COVID test. It's not COVID. So what's the danger in terms of how all that interacts? Because I read, for example, that if you have flu and COVID together, then the death rate is twice as high. So what, what do you think that could mean in terms of how that affects the National Health Service and how this pans out in the winter, basically? I think I think it is a concern. <clears throat> I'm not an expert on flu either, so I won't go too far into that. But of course, if we have a concurrent epidemic of flu running at the same time as COVID, then that's going to put more pressure on the NHS. In terms of uh, the bad cold, I think that's true. There's lots of that going around. But also, we mustn't forget that in the Southwest, people, a lot of the stories of the bad cold were coming from the Southwest where people were testing PCR negative. And in fact, they were being given false negative results by the immense lab in Wolverhampton. And in fact, they did have COVID. And actually, that's contributing to some of the high case rates we're seeing. The Southwest is currently a sort of epicenter uh, of the epidemic in the UK because people were told that they were not infected with COVID. They went to work, they went to school and they infected their colleagues and their classmates, you know, maybe carers even went into care homes. And so they're seeing a particularly bad uh, or particularly high rates of COVID at the moment. But overall, yeah, it's it's important for people to go and get their, 
their flu jabs, but also for us to try and keep on top of COVID if we want to reduce pressure on the NHS. So as we know, the vaccination programme was a tremendous success. So a lot of people are a bit confused about why the booster jab and uh, programme plus the vaccination programme for younger people, why is it being so slow? Because clearly if that was sped up, then we'd be in a much stronger position going into the winter. Yeah, absolutely. We um, we did do a, an incredibly fast and good job of rolling out the first and second doses. The booster programme is not currently able to keep pace with that. We're seeing an increasing proportion of people falling beyond this six-month um, period after which we want them to get booster jabs because we just can't keep pace. Part of that is due to confusion. We're hearing mixed messages about whether you should be actively booking your jab or whether you need to wait to be invited. In terms of uh, childhood vaccination, so vaccinations for 12 to 15 year olds who are the people who are most impacted by COVID at the moment, they've got the highest rates of, of COVID. Um, we've tried to do this in a really different way to the way we, we did with, uh, with adult vaccination. We are trying to do it in schools, uh, often through uh, private healthcare companies. And we're hearing lots of examples of that being cancelled in schools when, when people have got COVID, which is extremely high in that age group. They're not allowed to have their vaccine. Uh, and actually, it would be much better, which is, uh, and something which is about to be rolled out over half term, is if we could just do exactly the same thing we did with adults and just book into a vaccination centre, a walk-in centre, and get your jab done. But at the moment, in England, we're seeing only 17% of 12 to 15s having been vaccinated through this in-school programme, whereas in Scotland, where they've been using walk-in centres from the start, they've jabbed over 50% of that age cohort. So, um, you know, it's organisational issues. It's, it's nothing about the willingness of people to come forward and get vaccinated, but those two things would make a really big difference uh, to, to COVID levels, as well as doing things in schools like just basic mitigations like mask wearing, encouraging ventilation, maybe getting those CO2 monitors that were promised in the summer actually into schools. Apparently only 2% of them are in schools at the moment. So um, doing all those sorts of things would really help. Now, we've seen a few hashtags trending, no more lockdown. And there's a lot of talk about lockdown, the spectre of lockdown once again. And I suppose having gone through this now for a, a year and a half and having had a mass vaccination program, even lots of people who were very supportive of lockdown measures hear just that term and go, ah, we can't, we don't have the, we don't have the emotional space to go through that again. So what is the prospect of another lockdown? And what in practice are the sorts of measures that can be actually taken uh, to avoid a later, far worse, uh, you know, situation than we're currently in. So absolutely, let, let me be completely clear to start with, though, lockdowns are not something that anybody wants. Nobody wants lockdowns. Lockdowns are what happens when you fail to control COVID through other measures. In fact, the people that are ironically advocating for lockdowns are the people who are suggesting we have no restrictions at all now and just let things take their natural course. We can do some relatively simple things because we've vaccinated large numbers of people, which will allow us to, to control COVID measures. Things like reintroducing masks in public spaces, instead of shifting the, the blame onto the public for not wearing masks, simply say, if you're on public transport, if you're in a large gathering, then you need to be wearing a mask. It reduces transmission. 
Um, things like improving ventilation in schools and workplaces, making contact tracing work better. So, you know, for example, in schools, contact tracing has been devolved back to test and trace who have absolutely no idea about how to find the contacts of people who are in schools, whereas schools themselves actually have all those contact details available. So there are there are a number of things that we could be doing uh, to make things better. Uh, improving vaccine rollout is, is one of those things as well. Uh, and the, the point is that we should be acting now in order to, to try to make sure that we can bring cases down to slow the spread so that we're in a better position as we head into winter rather than just laissez-faire, letting things happen. It's time to activate the government's plan B, because if we don't do that now, then we're going to end up having to activate plan C. And as far as I know, there is no plan C. And if they, if they do come up with one, it's bound to be worse than the measures they're suggesting in plan B. So act early. That's the message that we should have learned throughout the pandemic. Kit, real pleasure. Thanks so much for setting out in very clear detail the situation we're in, how we got there, and what we do to escape an even bigger disaster. <laughs> Absolutely. Cheers, Owen. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.